Good morning. Uh, my name is Gil. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakewood. Uh, before we dive into this morning's message, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all of you who have made uh, us and me in particular feel so welcome over these last six months uh, and have prayed for us and have tolerated my getting your names wrong or saying, what's your name again? Because I didn't remember it from before. So thank you uh, so much again. Uh, it's, uh, those of you who have been praying for us, my family's uh, finally moved up. We're all together now. And it's good to have uh, my family back together. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for making all of us feel so welcome. So I have a simple question for you this morning. Why do you exist? Isaiah 43, 7, which Josh, which was at the end of the passage that Josh read for us this morning, speaks of those who are called by God's name, whom he has created for his glory. God, through Isaiah, wants to encourage his people Israel not to fear what man or nature can do to them, because God loves them and they are precious in his sight. But that motivation is actually secondary, not primary. In order for Israel to be precious in God's sight, they had to first exist. So the deeper question then is, why did God create Israel? Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that he created Israel for his glory. But does this only apply to Israel? Well, no, it doesn't. If we go back to Genesis 12, we find the story of the call of Abram. In the context of the Bible story, the call of Abram is preceded by the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And the people working on that tower wanted to create a name, wanted to make a name for themselves. And God put a stop to that. And then in the next chapter, he calls Abram and he says, I will make your name great. The juxtaposition of these two helps us to see that when ancient man refused to align themselves with God's goal, with the goal of God, God opposed them, and he took a different route to accomplish his purpose. That route was the election of Abram through no merit of Abram's own, that election of one person through whose descendants, Israel, he would achieve his purpose. God would make Abram's name great so that God, not man, would get the glory. God's creation of Israel for his glory, though, has its roots in the creation of mankind. Man was created from the beginning in God's image in order that he might reflect God's glory and the glory of God might resound throughout all of creation as man multiplied and filled the earth. Since the fall, people have refused to align themselves with God's purpose, but that purpose still remains. God created everyone, not just Israel, to glorify Him. That's why the New Testament carries the theme forward, calling believers to do all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. So why do you exist? You exist to glorify God. So what? Well, 
If we understand that our priorities need to be God's priorities in order for us to grasp his purpose for creation and redemption, and if we understand that our purpose in life is to bring God glory, and if we understand that God's purpose in creation and redemption is ultimately to display his glory and receive glory, then we really must look closely at what is this whole thing about God's glory. What is it? How is it borne out in the Bible story? And what implications does it have for us as we seek to become and to make disciples. So let's start. God's glory is a difficult term to define. It's, it's kind of like the word beauty. Uh, we use it and we communicate with it, but to reduce it to something that's quantifiable, uh, it, it can be really frustrating. It's easier to point to examples, like Ohio State winning the college football national championship. Uh, the lower falls of the Yellowstone River and Yellowstone National Park. The sheer number of people whose lives were touched by the faithful labors of Billy Graham. All of these things could be used as examples of something glorious. The glory of God is our attempt to put to words the beauty and excellence of God's magnificence, His purity, His grace, His holiness, His perfection, His goodness, his infinity, and his fullness. It's also how we try to describe the majesty of his works in creation and redemption. It's how the Bible speaks of special manifestations of his presence among his people at specific points in history. The pillar of cloud and fire in the Exodus. Uh, the dedication of the temple where he descended and filled the temple with the cloud. The coming of Christ. John says, we have seen his glory and that glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. It's an attempt to describe the grandeur of His position as supreme Lord of the universe. You see, God is far above all other so-called gods, and His glory is not to be given to another. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Romans 1.22 and 23 and Paul is speaking about fallen people, and he says they, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. No one is more passionate for God's glory than God himself. God is central and supreme in his own affections. He's not an idolater. He bows to worship to no other. He does not disobey the great commandment. Instead, he delights in himself with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and with all his strength. He will not tolerate anything or anyone that makes his name or his glory common. The Bible calls that profaning his name, profaning his glory. Ezekiel 20, 39, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go, serve every one of you as idols now and hereafter. If you will not listen to me, but my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. This verse from Ezekiel drives home God's passion for his glory. To give worship to any but God is to profane or to make common His name, His glory. God's manifest and intrinsic glory is so magnificent that to give devotion and worship to anything or anyone else is to wrongly declare that He is less than He is. Essentially, it's to lie about God 
or declare that he is a liar about himself. God's passion for his glory has to be our passion. So much so that God and the display of his glory must become the central focus of our lives. We must be God-centered. Someone who is God-centered possesses a hungering and a thirsting after God. John Piper asks this question. If you could have a happy marriage, healthy children, a successful career, good friends, fun vacations, a comfortable retirement, a painless death, and no hell. If you could have all these things and only these things, would you be satisfied? Would that be enough? There is something in the soul of every believer that will say, no, no, I hunger for more than that. I've tasted that God is good, and so to have all that is good in this world is not enough. I long for God. A.W. Tozer warns of the type of religion where Christ may be received without creating any special love for him in the soul. That a person would think himself saved, but have no hunger and no thirst after God. Think about marriage for a minute. I find that uh, people get married generally for, for two reasons, either for love and companionship or for some sort of personal expediency, be it wealth, um, security, politics, fame. When, when the world looks at these two reasons for getting married, say, for instance, a young man has racked up substantial debt, and the only way he can get out of it is to marry a woman that he does not love, but who has great wealth. He might be grateful to her uh, for help with his debts, but it's not likely that the relationship would ever grow beyond that. When the world looks at these two motives, the one who marries for money, politics, or fame, is despised over the one who marries for love and companionship. So how do you think God feels about the person who came to Christ to avoid going to hell and has never gone any further than that? That may be how some of us came to know the Lord. That may be the gospel that was preached to us. Come get saved so that you can avoid going to hell. And, and I would never say that that is a wrong place to start. But if it never goes beyond that, how do we think God feels about that? What about the person who can say nothing better after years of following the Lord, nothing better about his relationship with God than he pays my debts? If that is all there is to our religion, how do we think God feels about that? By contrast, the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. When can I go and meet with God? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The heart of the believer has a love, a taste, a hunger, a passion for God, and finds his satisfaction in learning of God, in plumbing the depths of the richness of who God is, of seeking to see the glory of God, and to display it to others. John Piper goes on to assert that the root of our quest for satisfaction in God's glory is God's jealousy that His own satisfaction in His own glory be known and shared by His people. Everything God did and does is ultimately so that His glory would be displayed from creation to the ultimate consummation of history and beyond. God has worked and purposed so that predestination 
creation, incarnation, propitiation, sanctification, and consummation are all designed to magnify His own worth and glory in the world. God's prime motivation, I'm not saying it's His only motivation, God's prime motivation in doing all for which he gave him pra- we give Him praise is to exalt fully His one glory by making it known and praised among all the nations. God's passion for His glory is meant to be shared by those He created in His image. And God created human beings to see, praise, and share His glory. The fall didn't change that, but it did change our participation in it. From Genesis 3 to Revelation, the Bible shows the story of God's mission to redeem a people as a means to display His glory and to be glorified by His people. So, let's take a look. Let's take some time to look from a bird's eye view about how this unfolds in the Bible story. Earlier we talked about the call of Abram in Genesis 12. And that follows God's thwarting of the plans of the builders of the Tower of Babel. Abraham wasn't the best ambassador. He had his faults. Um, But despite those, Genesis tells us that he did establish ongoing public worship of God, at least in his household. He relied on God's promise to bless instead of falling under the patronage of the king of Sodom. And in faith, he obeyed God in worship even to the point of not sparing his own son. In these acts, God received the honor and he blessed Abram in in return. Fast forward then several hundred years. We now see Israel in Egypt. And while they initially flourished in Goshen, Goshen, now they're enslaved by the Egyptians, and they spend their days building monuments for Egypt's false gods and for their king who thought he was a god. God sends Moses again and again to Pharaoh and commands him to let Israel go, and Pharaoh refuses. Plagues are sent, yet still the answer is no, and finally God comes after the God king himself. He comes after the one who would set himself up as a god and defy God Almighty, and he takes the life of his firstborn son, his heir. Pharaoh relents, and Israel plunders Egypt as a conquering army would as it leaves. But God's not done. Pharaoh hardens his heart again, and he pursues Israel to the Red Sea. Israel is trapped, and they are outmatched with their backs against the sea, God parts the Red Sea, Israel crosses on dry ground, and the Egyptian army is drowned. The Exodus is perhaps the most pivotal moment in Israel's history and is possibly the most crucial moment in the unfolding story of God's glory. Three purposes drive uh, the story, and they're found in Exodus 9, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God was setting apart a people for himself, 
to worship him. He was going to show his glory, and he was going to make a public spectacle of the most powerful nation on earth at the time, shaming their gods and bringing it to his knees without the use of an army, but simply by his own hand so that his name would be glorified among all the nations. And that's exactly what happened. The story of Israel's exodus from Egypt went before them, and even after their years of wandering, the people of Canaan knew the story and they trembled at their coming. Not because of Israel's glory, but because of God's. Joshua chapter 2 tells the story of the spies that Joshua sent to Jericho. Rahab, the prostitute, hides them from capture, and what she tells them is this, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. What God did in the exodus, exodus and the resulting fame of God's name had preceded Israel, and the people knew what had happened. And they took notice. As Israel moved into the land, God commanded them to utterly destroy the inhabitants and the structures and implements devoted to their idolatry. God knew that if the Canaanites were left in the land, then as Israel settled there, their worship would be sullied. The two peoples would intermarry, and Israel would be drawn into idolatry, into the idolatry, and into the wickedness of the Canaanites. God commanded that the people be destroyed and their false religions demolished to preserve the purity of his people and so that his name would not be profaned by being brought to the level of idols. That Israel didn't fully carry out God's instructions and their resulting struggles with idolatry shows that it was necessary. But the high point of Israel's story comes with the dedication of Solomon's temple. Solomon's reign is Israel's golden age. David, Solomon's father, was a man after God's own heart, and he had led Israel into faithful worship of God. Because of this, God had given them rest from their enemies that surrounded them, and the nation had begun to prosper. Under Solomon, God continued to prosper Israel so that word of the splendor of the nation spread far and wide. The temple represented God's presence in the nation. It was a place of encounter between God and Israel, a place of intimate worship, but not just for Israel, for outsiders as well. The fame of Israel was the fame of God, and as the message of the glory of Israel's God was carried to the nations, people came to see. Solomon understood this when he prayed in 1 Kings 8, 41-43, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And foreigners came. First Kings goes on to tell of the coming of the Queen of Sheba and of the wealth of the nation. As God made his name great and Israel made his name known, 
The nations heard, and they came, and they worshipped. But we know how the story goes. At the time of Israel's height, Solomon took foreign wives, and they led him astray. Idol worship happened alongside of covenant worship, and false gods were given an equal place with God Almighty. This idolatry, idolatry clouded and obscured the clear display of God's glory in Israel and profaned the name of God that had been established in Israel before the nations. And this began an up and down struggle for the nation that would ultimately see it conquered and exiled and its temple destroyed. But through his prophets, God had promised to restore Israel to the land for the sake of his name. We don't have time this morning to point to all the texts in the prophetic books that show God's mission to display his glory among the nations through Israel. But perhaps the most poignant is this passage from Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 32. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. God would restore Israel and purify them, but not for their sake, for his. So that his name and his name only would be proclaimed and his glory would be on display. The display of God's glory was also foremost in Jesus' mind as he went about his time on the earth. John 12, beginning in verse 23, we see one of the clearest statements of Jesus' mission and intent. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, loves, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The time had come for Jesus' crucifixion. And he equates it with his glorification. And what does he say is his purpose in verses 27 and 28? His purpose is for God's name to be glorified and God's reply to Jesus' cry is an affirmation that God has and He will glorify His name. And what will happen when Jesus is glorified? He will draw all people to Himself. So we see, we have a cycle that repeats itself. God displays His glory. The natural outflow of that is that people are drawn to Him and respond in worship. Worship that is loving, submission, and obedience. God receives His glory. And then people go and they proclaim God's glory and point again to God's display of His glory and the cycle repeats itself. God displays His glory. People are drawn to Him and respond in worship in loving submission and obedience. God receives glory from that. The natural outflow of that is that people go and they proclaim God's glory and they point again to God's display of His glory and it goes again. This gives new light to the salvation that Jesus came to bring. Salvation is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost for the sake of God's glory. For more on this, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose with which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it the praise of His glory. The glory of God is the ultimate purpose of salvation. Predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, blessing, the lavishing of wisdom and insight, revelation, hope, the gospel, belief, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and our inheritance in eternity, all to bring Him glory. 